Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to Experts Only. I'm your host, John Powers. Today, we're going to talk about long-duration energy storage with Eric Dresselhaus, who's the CEO of ESS. Before ESS, Eric was one of the co-founders of Silver Spring Networks. It's going to be a really interesting conversation about not just where the smart grid's going, uh, but also following Eric's really interesting career. But really the opportunity that long-duration energy storage provides is one of the key technologies to help us really enable the decarbonization of the energy system. As always, you can get more episodes at cleancapital.com, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Eric, thanks so much for joining me here at Experts Only. Hey, John, I appreciate you having me. So I know uh, we're recording today, you're up in Wisconsin, uh, visiting home or a place you grew up. So tell me about growing up in Wisconsin. You know, you end up going to University of Wisconsin and then had a, uh, a couple different career experiences leading you to Procter & Gamble. You know, like, did you, uh, how did you decide to get into marketing? Like, what was that path for you? Yeah, well, I was, uh, yeah, I was at the University of Wisconsin and had been involved in a lot of things uh, uh, at the university, including some student government activities and such. And all of a sudden, I was graduating, which, you know, uh, shouldn't have been as much of a surprise to me as it was at the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so and so I thought, wow, I've got to I've got to do something now. I've got to get a job. And had started to to go down, you know, the the probably a pretty typical path of a high, of a graduating senior. And a friend of mine, a gal that I had worked with in school and had known, had been a good friend, had gone to work for Procter and Gamble. And she came back on campus and said, "Hey, you know, I'm here recruiting, and uh, I think you'd really like it here. It'd be a great match for you. And would you like an interview?" And uh, uh, I'd love, I wish it was a better story than this, but it really was kind of like, well, I guess I've got nothing going at two o'clock tomorrow afternoon. Sure. I'll, I'll do it. And so I came in and I interviewed and, uh, didn't realize at the time that like getting an interview, an on-campus interview for Proctor was like a big deal. Right. Um, and that she had been doing me this kind of great favor. People were lining <laughs> up trying to do this. I just, you know, I just did it. And the one thing that Proctor, Proctor does a lot of things really well, but one thing they do really, really well is recruiting. And they kind of know what they're looking for and how to move it through a process. And so I had done the first interview and they, at the end of that, they said, hey, can you kind of hang around for a few more minutes? And, uh, and I said, sure. And then all of a sudden I was doing a second interview. And then uh, I think that night, maybe it was the next morning, I don't recall exactly, um, they called and said, uh, hey, would you like to come down to Cincinnati and uh, do some wow. interviews there? And uh, so I did the next week I was in Cincinnati and, uh, you know, learning more about what the company did and what, and, and, you know, how all of this was going to work. And I, you know, I was not a business major. I was in, I was an economics major. I kind of figured I'd, I'd go to work for the Fed or something. And uh, uh, the next thing I knew, you know, two, three weeks later, I had signed an offer letter uh, to go and start. So it, it all went pretty quickly it turned out to be something that I thought I might do for a year or two. And then, you know, I don't know, maybe go back to grad school or something. Uh, and I stayed for nearly 10 years. Yeah. That's amazing. And in that, we were talking before, you know, in that experience, you weren't working in, in energy or even networks, you were sort of marketing uh, around products, right? So what, you know, what in that uh, experience uh, over those 10 years 
did you learn that sort of carrying forward into what you're doing today? Well, I think a ton of things. Uh, the first thing I tell you that was actually part of the transition of how I got into the business was uh, I was at that age where I knew how to use a computer, which, right. you know, that uh, makes me sound like an old guy. But um, at the time, you know, people hadn't hadn't taken any comp sci. People didn't understand computers. Uh, having a PC was just becoming a thing that people would have. And so I was given a project to try to figure out how to create a tool uh, to allow uh, people within the company to exploit all of this, you know, just huge volumes of data that had come from the advent of UPC scanning. Mm. So UPC scanning had been around for a few years, but there really weren't kind of practical uh, tools to use it. So today we'd say I had a big data problem, but of course nobody called it that then. Right. And so I, I got to work on this and and start to really think about how we could better understand uh, consumer behavior, you know, kind of on a store by store, skew by skew basis. And through that process, I learned, I got a chance to meet some of the people who had really been pioneers in that space, people from IBM and from uh, NCR, you know, who developed the first scanners and uh, the people, the first grocery people to put the technology in. And and the important part of the story was they, they said that Originally, when they set out to do it, the, the business case, the use case for barcode scanning was, was pretty simple. They thought it'll be faster and more accurate, right? Those were the two reasons why you needed UPC scanning. But it turns out that that old manual putting a sticker on the side of a box and, and doing manual checkout turns out was lightning fast and dead nuts accurate. And there was no business case for barcode scanning to be done simply on labor replacement at checkout or for or for loss reduction. So mm. fast forward fast forward what we all know today, right? Which right. is the value is supply chain efficiency and loyalty programs and consumer behavior understanding and you know just a million other things uh, to the point where now we finally have gotten to you know, like self self checkout, which was even talked about 30 years ago. So that became important because a few years later, I met some folks that were working on some technology that that was really basically a meter reading system for utilities. And in talking to them, they were trying to build this really interesting, pretty sophisticated device, but their business case they kept coming back to was the cost of displacing meter readers. Right. And so the light bulb moment that eventually gave birth to a company, Silver Spring Networks, that I founded that got me out of the soap business, that clean tech business into yeah. the clean tech, the clean tech business I've spent most of my career in was the light bulb moment was what what the what the system of the future was going to look like was not replacing meter readers. That was incidental to the business case. What was important was could you create a system that would allow real-time end-to-end transparency for everything that generated, distributed, and consumed electricity. And so in 2002, we formed Silver Spring uh, to, uh, to take on that problem. Yeah. So first of all, I think you're tackling a really important issue for a lot of entrepreneurs and innovators out there that they may have you know, a really interesting widget that they're creating, but if they don't know and understand and are able to translate the business case to it or even understand the market impact of it, it's hard for them to get things like financing, right? To really grow their idea. So how, so talk me through that experience to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to leave Procter and Gamble and jump in and co-found Silver Spring, which, you know, is done. What, well, why don't you in your own words sort of talk about the path of Silver Springs? Cause you ended up 
IPOing and, and getting acquired, but really you created a really interesting uh, and important, um, you know, smart network for us. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think you're exactly right. A lot of people, there's, you know, sometimes uh, we have ideas, market ideas, but we don't know how to how to pull it off technically. And of course, given some of the challenges in the energy transition, sometimes that's the case, right? Um, we we kind of know um, uh, that there's a problem out there, but we we can't find a way to solve it. But the more common problem is somebody who comes up with a piece of technology and they think because it's cool on some level, that's going to carry the day, right? And and it doesn't. It's hard to raise money and it's hard to get this market to move, particularly if the product or the technology you're selling is sold to the incumbent utility industry. Right. Um, you know, that's that's harder. And and listen, I, I hear a lot of people uh, over the last 25, 30 years kind of moan and groan about these double utility guys and they can't make a decision and they're they're out to get the consumer. That has not been my experience. <laughs> my experience has been that these are very smart, dedicated people for the most part, but we are dealing with a system that has been optimized for a hundred years to work in a certain way and right. using technologies that have had every penny kind of scores out of them. Uh, and so they're super efficient. And so if you don't account for that, when you're, when you're bringing your technology, whatever your technology is, you're, you're not likely to, you know, put the right plan in place to go get it done. And in, and in our case, I'll, I'll talk about Silver Spring. We were, you know, we were, we had imagined a thing that now we very routinely call smart grid. But smart grid was not a term that anybody used in 2002. In 2002, IoT was not a term that had come into vogue for people. And so we, what we learned along the way was that you know we thought this is just so brilliant that of course everybody will see that it's a better mousetrap and and you know the and the and the world will beat a path to your door as the line says. And we, we had a very cold bucket of water splashed on us for the first three, four or five years for in two ways. One, what we thought was, let's call it minimal viable, minimally viable product, MVP is very big term in Silicon Valley, right? The, the bar for MVP course, yeah. in the energy space is really high. Super high. Right? Because yep. MVP means it works flawlessly for 20 or 30 years. Right. Right, <laughs> so that's right. you know, if you're building if you're if you and I the John and Eric company decide to go build a consumer app that helps people find the best pizza in town, um, you know we can turn revs of it uh, every week if we need to, and if it crashes and somebody reboots, the early adopters will put up with all of that. That whole dynamic doesn't exist. So the first thing we learned at Silver Spring was that. Um, uh, the the caliber and the reliability, the durability of the product was just a lot higher than we imagined. And how to build that product was a lot harder than we imagined it to be. Without actually then, being able to also te- test it in real time. Yeah, you got it right. Yeah. And, and, and then the second thing we learned was that the business case and how the economics would flow through was really challenging because we were building this really transformative uh, uh, thing that um, was going to, we thought, create value across all parts of the value chain, right? So utility operations would certainly give value, but uh, but energy procurement and distribution operations and planning, and of course, consumer benefits were really the biggest part of it, et cetera, et cetera. And it turns out there's no one bo- there's no one person 
that represents all of those constituencies in making a buying decision. So that's hard because if your value is, you know, um, is spread across all of those groups, the cost still has to be borne by one person, one right. provider. And, and this isn't unique to smart grid. You see this in, in people doing demand response programs. You saw a lot of this debate in the early days of distributed rooftop solar, where people would say, well, why do I give you know, net metering full retail rates? You know, that's not fair. But, the, but, but what's also not fair is that those assets provide a great service to the grid. And how does that get accounted for if we don't do it through some sort of a rate-making mechanism? Interesting. And so as you guys, I mean, but you were able to, you know, grow and scale over time. And I think you guys hit some really interesting trends with, with SilverString. In, in that process of sort of developing, you know, sort of having the vision really of the grid of the future, you know, is that what sort of stoked your interest in storage? Like, how did you end up, you know, really getting excited to, you know, down the road, wanting to become the CEO of uh, ESS? Yeah, well, you know, uh, it's a fair question. I remember giving a talk at an EPRI conference back in 2004, maybe it was. And uh, we were cheerleading um, that uh, there was a chance that within the next year or so, uh, we could get to 5% solar penetration or renewable penetration in total, right? So right, just to right. put, kind of put the frame, and we thought, wow, that's really a big deal. But even then, um, b- because of what we were doing at Silver Spring, we were kind of this glue that connected all of these devices. And we saw data from, you know, not just meters, but from uh, from from substations and from distribution automation equipment and, and uh, inverters and all of these, you know, we had... We had visions of electric vehicle charging infrastructure even back then and how all of this would get connected. And so we, we tried to think about the whole of the energy transition kind of and what would the impacts be. And one of the things you came to a very early conclusion on was that um, when, when renewable penetration and distributed resources more broadly became a bigger part of the deal, None of those things were going to happen with the with a really core dynamic that that fossil generation gave us, which was the ability to flip a switch and just turn it on whenever we wanted. And so it it became very apparent very early on, twenty years ago or more, that storage was going to be one of the linchpins to making this work. So we started looking at storage technologies and trying to you know be friends with uh, people working on storage. Some of the, even when we were still a private company at Silver Spring, we were in a portfolio at Kleiner Perkins and Foundation Capital. They were big investors in a company called Aquion Energy. Yeah. And Aquion, I, I remember looking at that at the time thinking, wow, that's cool. <laughs> you know, right. I, think, I think what we do is cool, but boy, that's really cool. And unfortunately, they couldn't kind of get it all figured out with the right economic models that, that it was going to take to do. But, you know, it's just something that I've been super interested in for a long time. Now, fast forward a couple of years later, and and really the 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 thing that happened at ESS for me that was really you know serendipitous, and I think you know there's often you know good luck and timing in these stories, uh, was the first is renewable penetration keeps growing and growing. We're you know uh, low twenty percent now on our way up with all of the mandates that are out at the state level. And of course the president's called for a totally decarbonized system by 2035. We we've crossed this 20% line, which somehow seems to be the time when 
things change in terms of grid resiliency and reliability and stability with distributed resources. So, So crossing that threshold and continuing the march up is a big driver for storage. The second thing that, of course, we see is this kind of general acceptance of, of the need to decarbonize the system as, uh, as as something that, you know, even five to 10 years ago, there was still more, it uh, feels to me, more debate about. And it really feels like we've turned a corner on that. I don't have nearly as many discussions with people about, is this even a good idea? Right, absolutely. <laughs> right? Like People kind of get it now. So that's important. But then the third piece that was really critical and and really to my great fortune was that Craig Evans and Julia Song, the co-founders of ESS, who were you know really really smart scientists who have been laboring away on this for a long time, really cracked the code. They've 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 created a system that not only works, but it works in an operationally uh, scalable way. You know, not just building the product, but the battery, how the battery itself operates is something that's really practical for uh, whether it's commercial industrial users or, or large scale you know, utility IPP users uh, to do, uh, to use it. And it does it at an economic point that now um, you know, is really competitive with anything else that's out there. So if, if any one of those three elements wouldn't be here, it probably would have been harder. Uh, but the combination of those three things coming together made it uh, a really, really appealing thing to jump into. Interesting. And then so for folks that don't know the history of ESS, ESS, you know, was actually a firm that uh, got an RPE award in 2012. Can you just talk a little about the, the growth of the company itself uh, and so the development of the battery? Yeah, sure. So the company was founded about a decade ago, 2011. And when Craig and Julia both came from kind of the fuel cell and, and generation business, and so they 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 kind of locked in on long duration storage, something that right. would go beyond two three hours as going to be a key thing to go work on. Uh, and they actually started uh, when they when they first got going, they were actually thinking about vanadium as kind of the technology path they would go down. They didn't start mm-hmm. with with Ironflow, and so they spent a little bit of time on that. But very quickly came to the conclusion that it probably wasn't going to be the answer simply because the the cost of vanadium electrolyte was too high. And this is before, you know, the price has gone up more recently. But if you just looked at the kind of the basis value of of where vanadium was, they're like, geez, we're never really going to get to the point where we can be cost competitive with lithium. So they, they, they started looking around with the criteria of saying, what's the most kind of abundant, low-cost thing that we can use? And they came, with, they, they came to Ironflow, which, of course, is iron, salt, and water. So you know, that's a pretty tough, if you're, if you're wondering right. where the, ter- the terminus cost of these things could get to, that's a pretty, that's a pretty great place. And some work that Case Western had done and some you know, kind of had been a university academic uh, experiment to that point. And they looked at that research and, and there was a problem, right? Keeping the electrolyte balanced, pH balanced, so they could stay electrically balanced and not clog the machine and, you know, dendrites and other problems that flow batteries have had was, was the problem. You, if you didn't solve that problem, you kind of weren't going to have a practical thing. So that's what they applied, uh, they applied to the RPE uh, funding for and uh, got a grant and developed the core part of, of the ESS technology that solves that problem, which is a thing that we call the proton pump. 
which is a which is a really really clever piece of technology um, that uh, helps keep the system entirely balanced. It's a it's a passive part of the system, so you don't have to have shutdown modes and uh, you know backwash modes and cleaning modes or things like that. It just constantly is is in the flow of the flow battery, um, monitoring and correcting the pH balance of the system. Um, and it and it uses uh, to drive that the the output of um, our chemical reaction. All chemical reactions have an output, but we put out hydrogen, and so we capture that hydrogen, which is of course protons, and pump them back into the electrolyte. So it's really an incredibly clever piece of technology that they developed. They deserve immense credit for. And um, and, uh, and so people can picture this, this is all done in almost like a convex container, right? Yeah. So, so it's like. Totally sealed system, right? So the, the the smaller version, it's it's a bigger unit, but the smaller version is in a forty foot shipping container, and it is entirely self contained. All of the the electrolyte and the and the, the the cells themselves, the stacks, the pumps, everything, all of the electronics are inside that box. So you can take it and uh, drop it in the back of a commercial industrial complex, and uh, the maybe already has solar panels on it, and those people want to go off grid or uh, play the economic model of uh, you know, bidding into capacity markets and ancillary services. Uh, and the battery can do all of those things. So two questions for you. In, that, uh, in, the, in the Connex container, you know, what's, what, what scale is that? So if you dropped it behind a, a FedEx warehouse, right, or an Amazon warehouse, like what, what scale is in that? And then two, are they modular? Can you just add additional containers that grow scale? Yeah, so so the the typical you know kind of nominal configuration uh, for for one box would be say a seventy five kW four hundred four hundred and fifty kWh box. So again, we're talking long duration here. So we typically start thinking about things at four hours, but right. are routinely routinely doing eight, ten, twelve hours of storage. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, for those that maybe haven't studied flow batteries, one of the really magic things about a flow battery is that it separates power from energy in terms of how it works. So power is based on the number of battery cells you have, but the energy is based on the amount of electrolyte. So you can add more juice to get longer duration without having to config, you know, to separately configure um, uh, the batteries. Uh, if you think of how lithium, if you think about how lithium works, if if someone said, "Could I build an eight-hour lithium battery?" The short answer is you could. What you would actually just do, though, is build four sets of two-hour batteries and then use them one right after the other. There's no efficiency with lithium as you go for longer, longer durations. You just have to kind of use one versus the next, and so on. So yes, and you can string multiples of these together. We have customers who are doing that, but it also gave birth um, in our uh, world to a second product. So we call the first product an energy warehouse. We call the second product an energy center. And what energy centers do is it, it, it creates even more flexibility of how you do the configuration. So the powertrains come in 300 kilowatt uh, racks. And you can, if you said to me, hey, Eric, I'd like to have a, a uh, three megawatt, 30 megawatt hour. So a 10 hour, three megawatt battery. How would I do that? And I'd say, hey, super easy. What we do is we're going to take uh, these powertrains. You're going to need 10 of them because they're about 300 kilowatts a piece. So you string 10 of those together to get three megawatts. And then we're going to size your tank 
to have 10 hours worth of electrolyte in it. And that'll give you a, a three megawatt, 30 megawatt hour uh, configuration. And if you wanted to, you could even oversize the tank so that later, if you said, boy, I, I know I said 10 hours, Eric, but I really want 12, you could add more electrolyte and extend that battery without having to change the powertrains. Super interesting. Super interesting. Well, I think we could have a whole conversation about the, the flow batteries out of this too. I mean, I think people are super excited about where that's going, but I do want to just look out. Like, let's look out over the next, you know, we, we now have a pretty uh, relatively friendly administration at a senior level and they are going to um, hopefully add some steroids to the deployment of batteries here. Uh, and, and, you know, obviously to the, the grid transition overall, how do you sort of see the, the next 10 years here playing out for, for, one, the market, and two, of course, for ESS. Yeah, sure. Well, I listen, I think that the administration has been, you know, largely right on uh, their support of these things. And whether that's, you know, the president himself on um, through to the infrastructure bill that's moving through the Senate to a lot of the bully pulpit stuff that Secretary Granholm and the Department of Energy have put out. Um, there's, you know, you kind of feel like batteries must be the most important thing going because that's really everything that, you know, it's talked about every every day, every week. So I think um, the in the near term, uh, that attention from the administration, from DOE, will really help to, to just kind of, as you say, jumpstart uh, the activity. I actually don't know that, that large-scale federal support is an important thing over the medium to longer term. If I look at that 10-year, uh, time horizon, because I think the simple economics of combining, you know, large-scale renewables with the right battery technology for long-duration storage is a standalone economic case that will work as long as we stay committed to decarbonization. Right. Uh, and I, so I think that that's going to take over unto itself. The, the biggest thing that the near-term money will do, I hope will do, is really force at a state level, because of course, that's where most of the policy and energy is made in our country is at the state level, not at the national level. hundred percent. Yeah. What I really hope it does is it helps to influence how people undertake uh, their, their, um, uh, their capacity planning as they look in those five-year and 10-year windows. And I'll, I'll give a quick example of that in California, there's been batteries. It's been a good battery market, but it's all short-term batteries. That's what's been out there to this point you know, two-hour batteries, a lot of one-hour batteries still, where the primary use case is only long, uh, is only a capacity and ancillary services. That's really all the batteries are used for economically. Fast forward to where we are from a renewable perspective today, and, and what, if, what do you have? Well, you drive down Highway 101 in, in the Bay Area, and you see billboards everywhere that say, please turn the power off from 4 till 9 p.m. Don't do laundry. Uh, don't cook dinner, don't charge your electric car, don't do any of these things. Um, that's not sustainable. Right. Uh, and, and, and so all of the sudden now, the state and Cal ISO and others have come out and said, hey, wait a minute, I need gigawatts of long duration storage on the system like now, <laughs> because it's the only way that I'm going to be able to create a 24-7 decarbonized system with the kind of reliability and resiliency that frankly, we all expect out of the electric system. Interesting. So if you had a message for developers right now as they're looking to develop these solutions, one, you know, how should they be looking at sort of selling long duration? 
into their customers, whether it be, you know, CNI and the utility, I think is one thing, but on the CNI space, like how do they sell this to their customers? And then two, like if you were sort of targeting the top three states, what would those be? Yeah, well, I'd say for anybody, and certainly we can talk about the commercial customers. I'll give a, a real example. The economic case is is you know is manifold. It's and this is an educational thing that we have to do with with our partners and with developers because um, if you give me uh, your use case, I'll bet that this kind of storage can do it. So we talk to a lot of commercial customers who say, "Hey, solar has been great, but I haven't been able to reduce my demand charge. Can I use the battery to store energy?" and reduce my peak demand charges, because that costs me a lot of money. And the answer, of course, is yes. Can I, uh, when the battery is fully charged and I don't need it, can I go bid into capacity markets, ancillary markets, and all of that? Of course, the answer is yes. Can I get, if I run two shifts, can I take my solar, I've overbuilt my solar or my maybe my micro wind, and can I use the battery to go really off-grid and be independent from the utility all of the time? And the answer is yes. And you can get a great business case with all of those things. But I'll give you an example from one of our clients who was in the other day, and we're talking in great business case, and they're talking about three to four year payback. And it's it's you know, they're very happy with that. And as we're talking, I, I asked them, had they been subjected to any of the power safety shutoffs? that happened in California and unfortunately now in Oregon and some right. other places. And they said, Oh yeah, man, that's, we've had a, we had three last year. We're going to, we've already had one this year. We're going to have more. It's terrible. It really is disruptive. And I said, what does that cost you? Well, what happens when they turn off the power? He says, well, we have to send everybody home because we can't run the factory without, right. without, without power. And I said, well, what's your cost of that? Their cost was something in the neighborhood of $150,000 of lost profit per building per day. And it's, I think, 10 buildings in this scenario. Suffice it to say that their payback for just keeping their business running for the whole cost of the battery system turns out to be less than a year. And everything else is gravy. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, so, so, so that's what I think. You know, certainly California, uh, New York. Uh, are are the two markets that get mentioned the most at this point. But I'd say that, you know, the simple way to think about the markets that we're targeting, whether they're the states in the US or some of the some of the overseas markets like Australia, New Zealand, and parts of Europe, is any place where renewables are growing disproportionately quickly, right? Uh, or where that renewable penetration has crossed the 25% mark. All of a sudden, those those markets turn on a dime, and they need you know eight to ten hour duration, yeah. uh, long duration storage, like instantly. And that's that's about as that's about as complicated as it is. Interesting. Well, Eric, this is super fascinating. First of all, I appreciate all the time and the the work, uh, and obviously the vision of what you are all building at ESS. And you know, I, I definitely want to have a, a future conversation with you about you know, really helping, I think, to empower developers, right, to, to take this message in and help tee up more and more opportunities, both for you guys, for clean capital, for others, right, to, to be able to develop these long-term uh, assets that will help stabilize the grid, but also provide real savings to, to the customers. So, well, so, John, I appreciate you having us. And hey, listen, what you guys are doing and other developers to drive this business forward is is incredibly important work. And all I would say is I think what we can contribute to that is to ensure that we don't get to the point where people say, hey, listen, I just can't take any more renewables now. 
Yeah, right? I just, exactly. I just, uh, I'm just saturated, and and whether it's grid congestion issues or it's just you know you hear these stories of grid pricing going negative in the middle of the afternoon in Iowa, right? Because right. there's just there's just no off takers. Somebody told me the other day that California dumped a gigawatt of solar last year because there were just no takers at the time. We if we don't collectively as a, as a team as an industry solve that problem, it'll come back to bite us. Couldn't agree more. So one final question, if you can go back to yourself in Wisconsin, when your friend came to you and said, Hey, I've got an interview <laughs> opportunity for you. And you could sit down and, and have a beer with yourself. What piece of advice would you give yourself? Yeah, I listen, I would have said have three beers. So you don't think about it too hard. There you go. <laughs> and, 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 and take the, and take the job because, you know, listen, for any young person, um, any, any, and Hey, not so young people that are out there, you know, if you can find a way to put yourself in interesting industries at interesting times, and then you're prepared to work hard and bring your whole self to it, it's amazing the experiences you can have. And I, I could, I, all of the moves that have happened in my career, as I look back, make perfect sense. But that 21-year-old guy back in Madison, Wisconsin at the time could never have imagined where it's gone. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Eric, thank you so much for, for the time. And thank you to the team at ESS for helping to set this up. Uh, thanks to our producers, Colin Young, Carly Batten, as always. You can learn more about ESS at ESSinc.com. You can always connect with Eric at that website. Eric, thanks so much for, for joining us. All right, John, take care. And as always, you can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.